Let's welcome Yonatan Arnold now, who's been our translator. He's probably a little worn out already. Thank you. All right, let me just say it's a privilege, a real privilege to be here. And uh, Carlos and I have been overwhelmed just with the hospitality here in Texas. Uh, we've never been here before. It's our first time here. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful, wonderful to be here. And, um, and we, we love this, uh, this state. <laughs> so Carlos has shared uh, some, of, um, some of his heart for evangelism I and mean, some of the things uh, that he's involved in as far as evangelism. Um, and what I would like to do is I would like to take the time that uh, we have now to just talk a little bit about the uh, Jewish side of uh, outreach or evangelism. Now, this first, first section, there's going to be two things we're going to do. We're going to look in this first section on the challenges. What are the challenges in trying to reach the Jewish people? There are two major ones, and that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a part of a larger seminar, so I might have to go through it uh, a little quicker than usual, but we'll see. And then the second, I want to show you what we do at Israel College of the Bible, uh, together with Carlos and others, uh, both in the in the sense of evangelism, how we reach out through the media to Israelis, and what we're doing to bring Jewish and Arab people together at the college. Okay, so that's the plan. We're going to look at the challenges in reaching uh, Jewish people. Let me just say, I don't know if you know, but there is a special commission. I'm, I'm imagining, I'm assuming most of you are not Jewish. There is a special uh, commission to Gentiles, to non-Jewish believers in Romans 11 to reach the Jewish people. It says that they did not stumble so that they should fall, but that through their stumbling salvation might come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So the calling, the very, very unique special calling that you have as people who are not Jewish but are following the Jewish Messiah is to return a favor by making Israel jealous. We've got your Messiah. Look, we're reading your book. And this is exactly what happened in my life and many other Jewish people who come to the Lord. They came to the Lord through Gentiles who shared the gospel with them, not Jewish people who shared the gospel with them. That can happen. It does happen. But many come to the faith through Gentiles who share the gospel with them. So that's fulfilling the unique calling that you have that Israel, even Jewish believers, cannot fulfill. You have that calling to make Israel jealous. Okay, so what are the challenges? Let me see. Oh, I, this I'm not going to use, actually. Okay, so what are the challenges with reaching uh, the Jewish people? We know that it's, uh, the gospel is a stumbling stone for a person just because he is a fallen human being, just because he has a sinful nature for all of us. It offends us. Uh, the folly of this message, it seems foolish, it offends us. But with regards to the Jewish people, as other cultures as well, but with regards to the Jewish people, I think that there are two major stumbling stones that usually stand in the way before they even get to the gospel so that they could figure out, are they going to stumble over this or not? They usually don't even get there. They, they think that they know what you're saying, but they have things in the way that prevent them from getting to know Yeshua or Jesus as He is and hearing the gospel as it is. So they don't usually stumble over the actual gospel and actually uh, uh, because of Jesus or His words. 
And that's often what people think. Oh, they're just stubborn. They won't listen. They're, usually they stumble and they reject and they respond that way because they have things that are hindering. Okay, so these are two stones in the way. And if someone stumbles over the gospel, that's, that's fine. I mean, that's the way it works. And God, that's God's work in that person's heart. And you'll see a lot of the principles uh, I'll mention. Uh, I'll see if I have time. But what I'll mention, you'll see that Carlos used those very principles when he shared the gospel on the street on that video, when he communicated to Jewish people the gospel. Okay, so there are two stones. One of them is history, Christian anti-Semitism. The other one is rabbinic authority or the rabbinic teaching, the oral law, Talmud, if you've heard that. Okay, so these are the two things we're going to talk about. So first of all, we're going to talk about uh, history. So I don't know if you've been to Europe, but in many of the cathedrals in Europe, you see this in the front uh, of the cathedral as you walk in. And it's synagogia and ecclesia. It's the synagogue and the church. You can guess who is the church and who is the synagogue. The church is the one who is victorious with the crown and the cup and the cross and uh, uh, victorious and strong and, and seeing. And Israel has the broken staff, uh, the words slipping out of her hands and blind. Right? This is common. This is common. This is what Jewish people see when they go to Europe. They see this is what the church is pictures at, pictured as, and this is Israel. Okay? Now, here is what Edward Flannery says in a book I recommend, Anguish of the Jews. It's pretty deep, it's detailed, but it's very good in serving anti-Semitism. Says Jews generally are acutely aware of the history of anti-Semitism, specifically Christian anti-Semitism, simply because it comprises so large a portion of Jewish history. Christians, on the other, on the contrary, even highly educated ones, are all but totally ignorant of it. So you, I want you to get into the mind of the Jewish person and what he thinks. It doesn't matter. We're going to argue, okay, they're not really believers. They're not really born again. Those who did this to the Jews. I understand. But this is how the Jewish people see this. It doesn't matter what we know, the distinctions we make. This is how they see it. And as far as they're concerned, most of their history of anti-Semitism and persecution came at the hands of those who at least called themselves Christians. That's how they see it. And Christians are not told about this. But Jewish people grow up with it. So let's look at some of the history of this. In the early centuries, we're talking about first century even, but second, third, fourth, we've got the church fathers, famous church fathers, Ignatius, Oregon, Origen, Chrysostom, Augustine. If you go to the writings of those church fathers, you would be amazed. I'll show you a quote from Chrysostom. You'd be amazed at what they have to say about the Jewish people. And this is just 100, 200, 300 years after Christ. So you see how far back it goes. Augustine, for example, what did he say? He had the witness theory. He said the Jewish people are like Cain. They have a mark on them. So they roam the world everywhere they go without really having a home. And nobody can quite destroy them completely. And they roam the world like that. And people always try to kill them, but they can't, just like Cain. And they serve as a witness, as a constant witness and a testimony to what they did, killing Christ, denying him, and so on, and to a witness of God's judgment on them. Now, um, 
What characterized that period up to the fourth century was anti-Judaism, meaning that the Christianity opposed Judaism as a movement, as a religion. And they gave it a theological foundation, or they tried to. They said all the prophecies are fulfilled. Everything was fulfilled in Christ. So what's the point in Judaism? The law has ended, and it's been replaced by the new covenant. So what's the point about Judaism if they follow the law? And the church is now the new Israel. So certainly Israel has been replaced by the church. A common uh, way of interpreting the book of Esther allegorically by the church fathers was to say that Vashti represents Israel and Esther represents the church, which is funny because Vashti is the non-Jewish and Esther is the Jewish, but they changed it around because they said Vashti is the one who lost her position and Esther replaced her. And this is common in many texts of the New Testament. Now in the fourth century with Constantine and others, uh, beginning with Constantine, anti-Judaism became anti-Jew. It's no longer opposing a movement, a religion, but it's now opposing every single Jewish person, wherever he is, whenever he lives, it doesn't matter. Anti-Judaism evolves into anti-Jew. Every Jew, in a sense, is responsible for the death of Christ. Christ killers, that's the, the famous motto. For example, Chrysostom. Chrysostom, by the way, means golden-mouthed. So he was the golden-mouthed preacher of the church fathers. I could think of many adjectives to describe his mouth. Golden doesn't come to mind. But here's what he said. He was a, very bril he was a brilliant rhetorician. He knew how to speak. That's true. But look what he said. It's just an example. There's many. The Jews are the most worthless of all men. They are lecherous, greedy, rapacious. They are perfidious murderers of Christ. They worship the devil. Their religion is a sickness. The Jews are the odious assassins of Christ. And for killing God, there is no expiation possible, no indulgence or pardon. Christians may never cease vengeance, and the Jew must live in servitude forever. God always hated the Jews. It is incumbent on all Christians to hate the Jews. But this is, a, this is just one example. If you open up the writings of the church fathers, this is exactly what they were teaching in their churches. This is, this is hard stuff. They, 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 they were very clear about what they, what they said. I can send, by the way, the, the PowerPoint to anyone if you're interested afterwards, so don't try and copy down every, everything. Okay, I'll send it to you if you're interested. Now, uh, fast forward to the Middle Ages. We've got the Crusades. Rashi, one of the, uh, or the major Jewish commentator, lived in the time of the Crusades, which made him interpret Scripture in such a way um, that was contrary sometimes to the simple meaning of the text, just to defend his community, because he saw whole communities murdered where he lived. So the eight crusades, right? And they all went under this slogan of kill a Jew and save your soul. Now, of course, they, they went to deliver and free the, the Holy Land. And of course, they killed Muslims as well as Jews. But they had a particular hatred to the Jews. And it was a particular object that they set in front to just go and kill uh, Jewish people. In When they arrived in Jerusalem, they put all the Jewish people living in Jerusalem at that time, uh, or whoever they found, they put them in the synagogue, and they locked up the synagogue, they set it on fire, and they marched around the synagogue singing, Christ, we adore thee. That's the Crusaders. 
Then we have social slander, the DSI charge, which we saw way back in Chrysostom. He already began with that. DSI charge meaning you killed God. And that's something very common. People, Jewish people in America growing up at schools, hearing Christ killers, other kids calling them Christ killers. I heard it firsthand. And, um, and th that's very common in America and in other places. Host des desecration is the libel that Jewish people would come in to the church secretly and go to the communion table and stab the communion bread and desecrate the table, uh, crucifying Christ or reenacting the crucifixion of Christ. And for that, Christians went out and killed whole communities of Jews. The blood libel beginning in Norwich in England uh, where Jewish people would uh, steal a Christian baby on Passover and kill the baby and use its blood to make the unleavened bread for the holiday. And for that, they went out and killed whole communities of Jews. And then why not the Black Plague? Let's blame it on the Jews as well. So Black Plague, what was it? Two-thirds of Europe died in the Black Plague, and Jewish communities did, didn't seem to be as affected. And so they said, oh, they must win. They probably went around and they poisoned all of the wells. And for that, they went out and slaughtered whole communities of Jews. But the truth is that the dietary laws that the Jewish people kept allowed for them to be more clean and more separate. And, and they, they had a different environment, so they weren't as affected. But the Christian community decided that they were the ones who did it. And so Spain, expulsion, inquisition, 1492. Columbus sailed, sailed, how did he go? Ocean's blue. So that was a time, uh, and he was, by the way, Jewish as well. Um, and that's a very dark time for, for Jewish people in Spain. Uh, they were all expelled from Spain, and they found their way to different countries, uh, Arabic countries, Spanish-speaking countries. Uh, so we have the Sephardic Jews today, the Spanish Jews, because they all had to, they were forced to leave Spain and find other homes. Um, and, of course, the Inquisition, absolutely terrible. I won't even go to the details of what they did there. Uh, but even if a Jew professed to believe in Christ, they would take him to the Inquisition under the suspicion that he's probably lying. It's probably not true. So they wanted to really torture him to, to see, okay, are you really the real deal or not? Or they would suspect that the Jew still lights candles on the Sabbath secretly or celebrates the, some, some of the holidays. Um, the Christian Reformation brought a lot of good with it. I'm not denying that at all. Uh, but where the Jewish people were hoping maybe for a little bit of relief, that didn't come. So we have Martin Luther, and he originally was for the reaching out to the Jewish people with a lot of compassion. Uh, but towards the end of his life, he turned against the Jews in a very um, violent way, uh, at least verbally. He said first, this, he wrote a few volumes on the Jews and their lies, it's called. So he said, first to set fires, fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. Such a desperate, thoroughly evil, poisonous, and devilish lot are these Jews, who for, four, for these 1,400 years have been and still are our plague, our pestilence, and our misfortune. So that's the Reformation. Fast forward to modern times, in Russia, we have the pogroms. These are state-sanctioned and subsidized persecutions of Jewish people. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? 
Okay, a lot of you. So this Fiddler on the Roof has a mini pogrom. It's not really true. I mean, a pogrom would be a slaughter, a total massacre of a community. But there, there is a little mischief that they, you know, they cause. But uh, my grandparents on my mom's side had to flee uh, Russia to England because of the pogroms. So did many other Jews, like you saw in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. But these were sanctioned by, uh, by the state, and Russia was a Christian nation, right? Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and then at the same time, we have the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Amazingly, until today, I don't know if you've seen this documentary a few years ago, but someone went and just checked, how easy is it to get the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? And in what languages? It was al almost everywhere he went, it was sold out, and that's in the United States. Now, what is the Protocols of Elders of Zion? It was a fictional piece written back then to the Tsar of Russia and given to him as a gift, which is a strange gift when you think about what it is. But it became known amongst people or believed amongst people that this is true. What it is, it's supposedly protocols of a special meeting of the elders, Jewish elders of Israel, planning how to take over the world. And people, till this day, 2016, believe that that is true. That, that these are secret protocols that were copied from the secret meeting of how Jewish people planned to take over the world. And it was sold out almost everywhere this person went in the United States. And in all languages. The protocols of elders of Zion. And of course in Germany we come to the height of anti-Semitism in our time in, uh, with the Holocaust. And we don't often think about the Holocaust in Christian terms. Because we, of course, know there's nothing to do with the New Testament. Nothing to do with the love of God. This is not the way of Jesus. But you have to remember how Jewish people see this. They don't understand these distinctions. They just know that these people call themselves Christians. And they walk around with a cross. And they go to church. And, it's, and, and listen, it's not just Catholic churches who joined with Hitler. Who opposed Hitler from within the Christian church in Germany? You had Karl Barth, you had Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you had a few. And within the Catholic, you had a few. But who opposed Hitler? Catholic and Protestant, Protestant they did not oppose Hitler. So we can't just say, oh, these were all non-believers. They just were nominal Christians. We can't say that. So, for example, you can see Hitler praying at a conference or whatever it is, at a meeting praying. Uh, Hitler celebrating Christmas with his soldiers, the Nazi soldiers. And then you see all the bishops, or bishops, I guess, uh, from the Catholic Church uh, saluting uh, Hitler with the Heil Hitler. And then down there you could see a church, Protestant church, that uh, outside of the church doors they had a sign uh, promoting Hitler's agenda and calling for Christians to support him. You have a cross and a swastika on that sign as you come into church on Sunday. And here's what uh, Hitler said in Mein Kampf. He said, hence today I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jew, I am fighting for the work of the Lord. And by the way, he said that he took what Martin Luther wrote in On the Jews and Their Lives, which we just read now, he took that as a mandate. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, 
left the mandate. This is what we should do with the Jews. So you have Kristallnacht. You have the night where all the shops are, you know, the glass is, in all the shops are broken, the synagogues are burned, because he took what Martin Luther wrote, seriously. And today in the United States, I know that you're going to say, okay, they're not Christians. They just say, normally, again, this is how Jewish people view this. It doesn't matter the distinctions we make. It's outside a church. Jewish people walk by and they see, oh, Jews killed the Lord Jesus from First Thessalonians. Why don't we go in and enjoy that service? You know, they go into Jewish neighborhoods and it says the Jews killed Jesus. God hates Jews. But remember, this rhetoric was right there in the third century. This is not something new that they just picked up now. And then in California, a Jewish community center written there in uh, German uh, language uh, warning Jews. And this is in 2009. And I could bring more statistics. In the past few years, uh, this uh, anti-Semitism has really risen in Europe and in the States. So this is older examples, but you could get far worse examples and current examples of this now. So this is what Jewish people see, okay? For centuries, this is what they've been seeing. Now, what are the implications? When you share the gospel with Jewish people and they think about you as being a part of that, everything that we've seen, and if you mention Luther and if you, you say, oh, Chrysostom was such a wonderful preacher and, you know, you talk about all of that, then what are the Jewish people thinking? And we're talking Germany. I mean, that's, what, 70 years ago? It's not that long. So they have an instinctive resistance to the gospel message because it is filtered through the lens of history. So they don't actually hear what you're saying when you're talking to them about Jesus. When you're talking about Jesus, I mean, my sister came to the Lord. Her husband is not a believer yet, but his father fled the Nazis. He survived the Holocaust. And when he found out that she's a believer, he told her, it's like you're plunging a knife in my stomach and you're turning it. When I shared once the gospel with a rabbi, I mean, we just talked and I told him what I believe in. He got furious and he just said, you're joining the people who burned your grandparents. See, that's how, now you're not always going to get this response, but this is history. I mean, history, textbooks in Israel, just teach this. I mean, that's because it's true. So you need to know that's how they filter your message. When you're talking to them about Jesus, when they see a cross, when they hear about a church. So what can you do? First, cultivate a biblical understanding of God's love for Israel and the Jewish people. I, it doesn't really matter if you're theologically, you know, you, you see things theologically different about Israel. But even if Israel are your enemies, in Romans, Paul says they are your enemies because of the gospel, but they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So even if they are your enemies because of the gospel, you need to know that they are beloved because of the fathers. And that has not changed. So wherever you stand theologically is okay, but you need to show love to God's people, whether you think they've been replaced or not. God says, I have a heart for them. Um, and be your sensitive self when sharing the gospel with a Jewish person. What do I mean by that? Be yourself. Don't try to be super awkward and try to be really, really Jewish. Just be yourself. It's fine. Be relaxed. Be yourself. They know you're a Christian. They know you're not Jewish. They know you're American. It's no problem. Just be yourself. But be sensitive. Try to be sensitive to them. 
and this is where uh, I gave you the table of terms. We're not going to go through all of them. But you could use this in order to try and change or adapt a little bit how you communicate the gospel with Jewish people. So if you say Christians and they have a really bad view of Christians, then why not say believers or followers of the Messiah? If Jesus Christ is something that is really ringing bad in their ears, then you could say Yeshua, which is his uh, real uh, Jewish name. And he's the Jewish Messiah. If church has a bad connotation, you could say congregation or kehilah. Easy word, that's a Hebrew word, kehilah. Ecclesia, same thing, church. The cross, the symbol of the cross is often uh, difficult for Jewish people because of history. So you could explain, we, yeah, we have crosses, we wear on our, you know, around our neck or we have a cross in our church, but it's not like we believe in the actual symbol. We believe in what happened, the story. And you could explain that many Jewish people died on crosses, were crucified back then. It's not just Jesus who was crucified back then. This was a common way of executing in Rome. Anyway, you could go through this. Afterwards, you could come if you have any questions. I could uh, help you to work through this. But just, just read. There's some scriptures there. Just try to adapt your language as you're talking to them. Um, and notice that at the end of the chart, at the bottom of the page, I said, you're going to meet Israelis who are not fussed at all about how you're communicating, you know, so you're using Christianese and they're fine with it. And you're going to think, oh, I thought they're going to explode if I say church or if I say Jesus, and they're fine with it. Well, that's true, and especially a lot of the young people. But here's the point. They think it's okay because you're a Christian. But it, if, it's not, if it's not communicated to them in the way that we've, we're talking about it now, they will never think it's something that maybe is okay for me. They will think, I'm okay with everything you're saying because I think it's okay for you. But if you explain it in a way that shows that it's Jewish at root, then they think maybe I could be a part of this. So that's the point. So maybe someone doesn't explode, but still I would suggest that you use this. Um, okay. Uh, two books that I would recommend. Uh, like I said, The Anguish of the Jews, but that's a survey of, of uh, anti-Semitism. The history of anti-Semitism in general, very good, very detailed, goes way back. Um, they found anti-Semitism in ancient times on, on uh, paintings on, in caves. It's amazing. So this the, it has reasons. But anyway, he does a great job, uh, Flannery, of this. Uh, but Michael Brown, it's a book that really focuses on Christian anti-Semitism. So if you want to go through a survey of some of the things we talked about, like the Church Fathers and others and like that, uh, so Michael Brown, highly recommended. It's not not an easy topic, but it's important. Um, okay, so before we go on to the second stone, uh, let me just take maybe maybe we'll take one or two questions because it's going to be a different topic. So let me just take one question or two, and then we'll have more time in the panel. So anyone has a burning question you want to ask now? If not, that's perfectly fine. I'm going to go on. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you say Bible, and that is something that they could relate to. That is, yeah. Right. You could say, uh, the for a Jewish person, if you say Bible, he's going to think probably the Old Testament, which is the Tanakh. In, that's how they call it. Um, so if you say Bible, just know that he's probably thinking Old Testament only. But yeah.
uh, from my experience, they absolutely love it. They are so touched by it when Christians say, we're praying for you. And that is often something that even, even I would suggest, if you think that it's okay, at some point, pray with them so that they hear how you pray. Because a lot of Jewish people were always, from, from our experience, they were always amazed by it. What kind of freedom you have to speak to God just like that, so openly, like you know Him. And so I would say that even pray with them so that they hear it. Even if it's a short prayer, but they hear it. And often you'd see that they cry or they're touched by it or they ask, how? How do you pray like that? So definitely, yeah. Uh, okay, one more, I think. Yeah, afterwards, if that's okay, yeah. I think you could, yeah, I mean, you would know better than me how to maybe adapt the terms or explain the situation in such a way. Uh, it's important to say to the Jewish people not, uh, not to deny that it happened, right? So we, we acknowledge that it happened and we're sorry that it happened and here are the explanations. And I think that there's the same thing maybe to, to, to do also within the racial issues within the United States saying we don't deny that it happened, we acknowledge that it happened, and often at the hands of people who call themselves Christians and use the Bible to justify what they did, but here is how we see it, and here what we think is, you know, we could do to correct it, or, yeah, so there are definitely parallels. Good question. Okay, other questions I know, but uh, maybe for the panel, we'd love to take your questions then. Okay, second stone is rabbinic authority. So first one is history, Christian anti-Semitism. The second one is rabbinic authority. As you know, for the Jewish people, they see the rabbis at, as the highest authority for interpreting scripture. So if you're going to come to them with scripture or religious issues or terms like the Messiah, the end time, the kingdom of God, faith, they're going to think, how does that work with the rabbis? Now, a lot of, most of Jewish people are not religious. So they might not go, they might not be so conscious of this, but they still, if they have a religious question, when it comes to it, they will go to the rabbis because they don't know anything else. So they might not be religious, and at that point, they might not go to the rabbi, but when it comes to it, they will think, what do the rabbis say about it? Because that's what you learn. You learn the rabbis have the authority to interpret scripture. And that's very much like in the Catholic Church, the priests uh, interpret for you what scripture says and it's often not encouraged to study the bible for yourself although i know it's not always true but so what is the oral law the oral law is a legal commentary on the torah the pentateuch explaining how its commandments are to be carried out common sense suggests that some sort of oral tradition was always needed to accompany the written law because the Torah alone, even with its 613 commandments, is an insufficient guide to Jewish life. It's an insufficient guide to Jewish life. So I understand where they're coming from, because when you try to take, and I think someone actually tried to do it, but when you try to take the text of the Torah by yourself, and you just say, I am going to live out what this text says, you quickly find out that you can't. There are so many gaps, so many things missing, so many things unexplained that you find that you have to fill in those gaps somehow. It tells me what I need to do in situation A, B, C, and D, but suddenly come to this situation E and I don't know what to do because it doesn't say. So an oral tradition 
Yes, it's logical that they had an oral tradition like every culture has, but the problem is the authority that they gave this oral tradition, saying that the Torah is an insufficient guide. And so here is what we find, origin of the oral law. Believed to have been given to Moses on Mount Sinai, along with the written law. So they believe Mount Sinai, Moses goes up, receives the law, tablets and all of that. He receives at the same time an oral law from God. That's what is believed. It was passed on from Moses to Joshua and from him to the elders of Israel. It then came down from the elders of Israel through the ages in an unbroken chain. It was put down in writing after the great revolt around 200 AD. And it's known today as the Talmud and is the very heart of rabbinic authority. In other words, it came from Moses, Joshua, elders of Israel, and all the way to the rabbis today. So the rabbis inherit, inherit the authority that Moses had, and they get this oral law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and they interpret it for us and teach us how we should live and how we should live out these commandments, what we should do in every situation. And that's known as the Talmud, heart of rabbinic authority. What are the implications? Because of its divine origin, so oral law is considered to be divine. Oral law is considered to be given from God. It is considered to be the only correct interpretation of Scripture. Think about it. If it's divine, it's the only correct interpretation of Scripture. And the rabbis receiving it throughout the ages are the only reliable source of modern interpretation because of transferred authority. So here's what we would hear from people. Only the rabbis can explain the Scriptures to us. We can't understand them ourselves. How can you say that you understand more than the rabbis? So many times we would hear this. It's a stumbling stone. And we would hear this from people who are not religious. But they still say, what, are you wiser than the rabbis? You interpret scripture, and often we would give them an interpretation that doesn't align with the rabbis. So you're smarter than them, and you contradict them? Who do you think you are? They've received it down the line throughout the ages. Another implication, because of its divine origin, it is the only defining source for theological terms. If I want to understand what forgiveness is, if I want to understand what justification is, righteousness, what is the Messiah, I go to the rabbinical writings. So here's what we hear. Messiah isn't supposed to die for my sins. That's a Christian concept. Jewish people believe in a Messiah who will bring peace to earth and rule as a king. So, in other words, rabbinical author rabbinic authority has defined the term Messiah. For us, it's very easy to connect those two things. Messiah, sacrifice, died for me, atonement. Doesn't connect for Jewish people. Messiah has nothing to do with atonement and sacrifice and pardoning of sins. That's not his role. He is supposed to... Now, what they have in mind is the second coming. And that's the only thing they have in mind. Because that's what's been emphasized. It's true. Rabbinical uh, writings, you would find that they also talk about the, son, uh, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, and the Messiah, the son of David. A suffering Messiah and a conquering Messiah, a ruling Messiah. But what's emphasized in Jewish mind, minds is the reigning Messiah, the second coming. So they, they are right about the things that they say. But it's about the second coming. 
So they have this definition of the Messiah that has nothing to do with atonement. So when you come to them and you say, don't you know that Messiah had to come and die for your sins? No, I didn't. And it's not in Scripture. Messiah is a king. He's coming to rule over Israel and the entire world. True for the second coming, right? So we have to remember, we have to, explain, we have to make that connection for them with Scriptures like Isaiah 53 and others. We have to show the Messiah has also, should have also come to be an atonement. Another implication, it is considered to be the core unifying and preserving element of the Jewish people after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And that's true. That's true. The traditions that the rabbis have kept, you know, before the destruction of the temple, we had Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Messianic Jews, the followers of Yeshua, right, and all that. The Pharisees are the only ones that survived well, the Messianic Jews and the Pharisees are the only two ones that survived from the Second Temple period. But the Pharisees survived, and the Pharisees became Orthodox Judaism of today. It's not the Sadducees, it's not the Essenes, it's not the Zealots, it's the Pharisees. So the Orthodox Judaism of today is based on the Pharisees, and they've created a tradition that unified the Jewish people wherever they were. And that's not all bad. But again, the problem is the what they feel that they're challenged, how they feel that they're challenged with your message. And here's what we would hear. Our parents and our grandparents kept these traditions for centuries. And you want me to throw them away? That's what keeps us together as a people. You see how they feel threatened by what you're saying? You mean those traditions, they don't matter? We could give up all of these traditions and all of these commandments? And what, what's going to happen to us as a people? That's what they feel. So what I would say to a person is, I have no problem with rabbinical writings. I just want to compare it with Scripture. As long as it aligns with Scripture, I don't care. That's fine. There are gr there's great stuff in rabbinical writings. By the way, Calvin, Luther, which we all enjoy their commentaries today, where did they go to study Hebrew and learn about how to interpret the Old Testament? They went to the rabbis. So a lot of people don't realize when they read Calvin, they read Rashi, the Jewish commentator. That's exactly what happened. Where did the pagan world learn this? So there's not all bad in the rabbinical writings. No, it's good. But we need to compare it with Scripture and keep Scripture as our highest authority. So what can I do? When you talk to a Jewish person, stay with Scripture. Use it as your only source of authority. Don't try to show the Messiah in the Talmud because the person you're talking to might be more educated in the Talmud and then he'll pull up another part of the Talmud that says exactly the opposite. What are you going to do then? So some scholars are deep enough into the Talmud, they know enough, and then they do work within the Talmud with religious Jews to talk about the Lord. But I wouldn't suggest that we do that. Stay with Scripture. Challenge the person to consider what Scriptures themselves say about the existence of an oral law. Where is it in Scripture? In other words, you're talking about an oral law that is authoritative. Where is that in Scripture? It says that Moses had to write everything down, and you're telling me that there was an oral law not mentioned even once in the written law. But you're saying it's there. It's an argument from silence. There's nothing there. And then you appeal to a person's common sense. But let me show you some examples. Key scriptures. Moses wrote everything down. Okay? Why does it say that Moses wrote everything down if he didn't? <laughs> Simple, right? Common sense. Where is the oral law in scripture? I can't see it anywhere. If it's that authoritative, 
to interpret the written law, shouldn't it have been at least mentioned? Josiah in Second Chronicles, you remember the king he sends the priest and others to clean out the temple? Just to clean it out. Let's just start sacrificing and let's go back to, you know, the right way with God and all of that. But the priest finds the written law. He's surprised when he finds the written law in the temple. And then he brings it to Josiah and Josiah rips his clothes apart. He says, what? There's a written law and we haven't been doing this? So you want to tell me that this whole time there was an oral law when the king who was supposed to copy down Deuteronomy, that's a part of his job, he didn't even know about the written law, but the oral law was there? He was so surprised that there was a written law. See, it doesn't make sense. The 70 elders of Israel, supposedly those are the ones who received the oral law and transferred it on to the rabbis. Look at what Ezekiel tells them, at the kind of sin that they're committing. You remember they're facing the sun and the back is to the altar? They're worshiping idols, the 70 elders of Israel. Those who should have had the oral law, supposedly. The unbroken chain. You can look at other uh, scriptures where God rebukes the instructors of the law in Jeremiah's time. He states that they have rejected his law. He rebukes them for claiming ownership of the law and accuses the scribes of dishonesty. It's very hard to argue for a steady line, an unbroken chain of a perfect oral law from the Mount Sinai until today, from scripture. So just show them scripture, talk about the common sense issue. Okay, I think that that's... That's it. Um, Michael Brown, I mentioned before, has uh, five volumes of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. So he has an objection and an answer, an objection and an answer in five volumes, and it's very, very good, very easy to follow. The fifth volume deals with the oral law. So if you want to know how to answer Jewish objections to the oral law, what we've just talked about, you could find it in that uh, book. Okay? Thank you very much.